0: The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news in comment, Collusion and the Battle of the Wall. This is Thursday, January 10th, 2019. Thank you for supporting this independent news by patronizing its sponsors and through the PayPal Donate button at buzzburbank.com. Let's say you live in the South and you're in law enforcement. And let's say you voted for Donald Trump and that you agree with him that the U.S. needs a wall along the southern border to stop immigration. If you live in that place and do that kind of job, you are very likely a Republican voter. More specifically, let's say you're a guard at a federal prison where a hurricane three months ago ripped the roof off much of that prison and ripped away much of its fencing and you're still waiting for your place of employment to be repaired and maybe even your home, which was also damaged by the storm. Now imagine having to relocate hundreds of inmates to another prison that's 400 miles away in another state, Mississippi. And if you want to keep your job, you now have to drive seven hours to get to that other prison and stay in Yazoo City, Mississippi for two weeks at a time, away from your home and family, without getting reimbursed for the hundreds of dollars you spend in those two weeks on gas, food, and laundry. Now let's say a government shutdown has been heaped on top of all that and you aren't even getting paid the money you've earned to try to feed your family and buy your overpriced prescription drugs. And the man you voted for, for president, is saying the shutdown might last for months or years and saying, quote, most of the workers not getting paid are Democrats. And let's say you're not alone, that you live in a town of 7,000 people, hundreds of whom depend on that hurricane-damaged federal prison to put food on their tables while many other are farmers who depend on the local USDA office, which, for all intents and purposes, is also closed by the government shutdown. As it stands, the farmers cannot get the loans they need to buy seed for this year's crops. Mariana, Florida, is where you will find that temporarily closed prison, near the intersection of Florida, Alabama, and Georgia, and none of this is hypothetical. The New York Times reporter, who visited the Waffle Iron restaurant on Route 90, found temporary walls of plywood and plastic sheeting and a dining room full of these farmers and prison guards. She found that they still support Trump and still want the wall. But not all of them. Everybody I talk to wants the wall, said a 72-year-old car salesman. You can point fingers at both sides, said a 44-year-old man. A 37-year-old guard added, Sometimes you've got to do stuff to get stuff done. But a woman who has to kiss her three-year-old twins goodbye before she leaves for two weeks for the prison in Yazoo City, Mississippi, says the shutdown, if it lasts more than another month, is going to force her to look for another job in the private sector, she says. Another woman who works at the prison and who has seven-year-old twins is also losing faith in Trump. I voted for him, and he's the one who's doing this, she said. I thought he was going to do good things. Now imagine you're one of the 7,000 employees of the United States Secret Service, maybe even one of the agents who guards the life of the President and his Treasury Secretary, and you're not getting paid. By Saturday, Trump's government shutdown will be the longest in U.S. history. The previous record holder lasted 21 days, beginning in December of 1995 and ending in January '96. This one could last for years, according to the President. Months or years were his exact words. As things stand, that would seem possible. Trump is refusing to sign any bill to reopen government unless he gets his border wall. Yesterday, he stormed out of a meeting aimed at reopening government, calling that effort to put 800,000 federal workers back on the payroll a total waste of time. His art of the deal negotiations have gone nowhere. And now he wants $5.7 billion for the wall and an additional $7 billion, to hire more immigration judges and border agents, and to build more detention facilities. Democrats are blocking what they see as a waste of taxpayer dollars on a needless, hateful, fear-driven wall that the taxpayers were told would be covered by Mexico. Republicans have long hoped they wouldn't be forced to fund that wall, and at least seven House Republicans have broken ranks and voted with Democrats to reopen the government without money for this wall. But there is the party of Trump, and Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell has been mostly out of sight, withdrawn into his shell, not commenting on the shutdown or taking part in the talks to end it, because not giving an inch, he believes, will give Trump the best possible outcome. Like the president, the Republican leader of the Senate sees no urgency to ending the shutdown. There is urgency, however, among the 800,000 federal workers who are wondering, figuratively, if not literally, where their next meal is coming from, or at least the next paycheck, which was to have arrived tomorrow. It won't. Will those workers be able to pay the combined $249 million in mortgage payments that are coming due this month? And what will that do to the economy? Bank of America is worried, and it has downgraded its estimate of U.S. economic growth. FDA inspectors have stopped inspecting our food and gone home. The FDA says it hopes to bring back enough inspectors to at least keep an eye on the easily contaminated foods like spinach, romaine lettuce, seafood, and soft cheeses. Next week, hundreds of TSA agents are calling in sick. They say that's because they cannot afford commuting and parking without a paycheck. It actually appears to be a protest against working without pay again. About 170 a day are now out at new york's somewhat busy kennedy airport these tsa screeners some tsa screeners are resigning over the shutdown their union chief says this will definitely affect the flying public there is urgency among the 38 million americans who are getting fewer food stamps and soon perhaps none The money runs out next month, and that'll hurt grocery stores as well as hungry Americans. The USDA, which helps manage everyone's food supply, has been shut down. 95% of its workers have been sent home. The USDA shutdown also means services usually available to American farmers are on hold. Farmers cannot get new loans or get their food certified as organic, no quarterly price reports on harvesting, information needed by farmers for planning future crops, conservation programs are also on hold. Tax refunds for tens of millions of us would be cancelled if the shutdown lasts into next month. Refunds usually start going out in late January. But the IRS is missing 90% of its staff and is now trying to find a way to pay some of its workers to return, if it may not succeed. So it'll also try to get some to come back to work without pay. By three weeks from now, 18 million people will have filed their returns and will be awaiting their refunds and hoping there's somebody at the IRS to process them. Democrats have now passed a bill to fund the IRS so people can get their refunds without getting a wall it didn't seem Republicans would vote against their fellow Republicans getting the money they're owed. The presumption was they would pressure Trump not to veto such a bill. And if he did veto it, they would override him, we thought, because they would not deny Republican voters their money. And although eight Republicans have defected and voted with Democrats, most Republicans stuck with Trump on both the wall and the shutdown. Still, Democrats carried the day, but with little help from the GOP. Under Democratic control now, the House Ways and Means Committee has been pressuring Trump Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin to say it out loud if he, in fact, intends to deny people their tax refunds. Fair question, since without those refunds, people wouldn't be spending money on things made and sold by other Americans. The economy would likely take a hit. Jobs would be cut. We're talking about billions of dollars being withheld from the U.S. economy. And without paychecks, those 800,000 federal employees will most assuredly be spending less. Most are worried about just paying the rent and buying groceries on those overpriced prescription drugs. Some are filing for unemployment. Some are cautiously getting jobs outside government. Yeah, about that. The shutdown is also affecting private industry. The employees of government contractors have also been sent home, also continuing in some cases to work without pay. From security guards and researchers to cafeteria workers and computer coders, we're talking about hundreds of companies that are now issuing stop work orders. Unlike federal workers, these private sector employees will not get back pay if and when the shutdown ends. Two million Native Americans are also affected by the Trump shutdown. Just one tribe, the Chippewa of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, is losing $100,000 a day normally used to staff health clinics and to put food on the shelves. Reservation education is threatened. And in Indian country, too, employees are not getting paid, and the loan sharks have started to circle. The Navajo Nation that spans Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico is also hurting. Snow is piling up, and the roads are going unplowed. Native Americans are trapped in their homes, unable to make the 20- or 50-mile trip to buy food, water, and medicine. It's even worse, of course, on the reservation in northern Minnesota. Federal parklands, except for some popular campgrounds, remain open to the public as the Interior Department's National Park Service scrambles to pick up the garbage that's piled up since the shutdown began and to finally clean the restrooms for the first time in over three weeks. Those chores are now being handled with money from a fund the Park Service keeps for future projects. Money flows into that fund through park entrance fees, and the law is very specific about how the money is to be spent. Using it to pay the salaries of furloughed workers appears to run afoul of the law. And sapping that fund means work already overdue will have to wait even longer. There is concern about the safety of the wildlife in these parks without park rangers on hand to enforce the hunting and fishing laws. There is also concern about the safety of people visiting the parks and with good reason. Today on this the 20th day of the shutdown Joshua Tree National Park in California is now completely closed. A skeleton crew was able to maintain the restrooms and the trash collection for more than two weeks but became overwhelmed when unsupervised park visitors carved new roads over delicate fauna and damaged, of all things, the Joshua Trees. Eight employees could not manage these 800,000 acres, so Joshua Tree will lay off its remaining workers and remain closed until government itself reopens. And while the government's closed, Trump's threatened to cut off emergency funding to California for its firefighting, or maybe he already has. Trump tweeted that he's ordered FEMA to cut off that funding. He says California isn't managing its forests properly. FEMA had no comment, saying it isn't able to respond to press inquiries because of the shutdown. Three days into the shutdown, a 14-year-old girl fell 700 feet to her death at the bottom of Glen Canyon at the Horseshoe Bend Overlook in Arizona. On Christmas, a man fell at Yosemite in California. Two days later, a man was killed by a falling tree in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park on the borders of Tennessee and North Carolina. To avoid people getting trapped in the unplowed snow, Mount Rainier in Washington is now closed. The clock over the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C. is still running, even if the government isn't. Although the president now manages a pricey hotel in what used to be D.C.'s main post office, the clock tower above it is a national monument maintained by federal employees. The park rangers who work the clock and give the tours in the old post office tower have been exempted from the National Park Service furloughs. Rangers at the Lincoln Memorial down the street are furloughed, as are the guides at the Smithsonian, but the federal clock above Trump's hotel is still running smoothly. The failure of both parties to fix our funky immigration system have led us to this moment, but Trump's immigration policies now have tens of thousands of people trapped at the border with no way in and no way out. Homeland Security is overwhelmed. It's spending more on food and medicine. Its diaper budget alone has increased by 60 percent to keep up with the growing number of children now in U.S. custody. It doesn't have enough buildings or personnel to process all the asylum requests. And DHS is now asking the president to keep military troops at the border to help. That deployment was to have run out at the end of this month, but Homeland Security says the troops haven't finished their razor wire fencing. The military has built 70 miles of that fence. Homeland Security wants more fence. Without the guidance of ex-defense secretary James Mattis, the Pentagon will now decide how many troops to send for this second deployment and whether they should be National Guard or active duty soldiers. Homeland Security wants this deployment to run through September. DHS also wants airplanes to move the troops, although its focus will mostly be the southern borders of California and Arizona. And DHS wants more medical personnel now that two children have died in its custody. It also wants more surveillance equipment. The president had talked for days about using his authority to invoke a national emergency, declaring an emergency for a crisis he says was caused by the lack of a wall, a steel wall, as he prefers this week. And although declaring a national emergency is within a president's powers, not so he can use the military to build a wall, as he has threatened to do, the Constitution says a president cannot use the military to enforce domestic law and that he cannot spend the people's money without approval from Congress, period. I can do it if I want, declared Trump. Absolutely, he said, as he headed for the border today, possibly to announce this emergency and set off a court fight that could lead to a constitutional crisis. But the National Emergencies Act of 1976 set up checks and balances on precisely this, after previous presidents had abused their emergency declarations some 470 times. Trump said he would use the legal principle of eminent domain to get the land along the border to build that wall, and he said he would get the money for all of this by taking it from the U.S. military budget. He says the trade deals he's made will recover that money, and that, he says, is how Mexico will pay for the wall. But Trump says a lot of things, including that his wall, quote, has a lot of miles already. It has zero miles. Although old barriers have been replaced since Trump took office, not an inch, not a single inch of new barrier has been built aside from that 70 miles of razor wire being installed by our troops. Now he wants to use those soldiers to build a wall. That would be illegal. And military personnel who obeyed his build the wall order would themselves be subject to criminal prosecution and would each face up to two years in federal prison. Still, Trump is inching closer than ever to declaring an emergency, which he says he will have to do because he says he cannot negotiate with unreasonable people. Within hours of being sworn in, the Democrats who now control the House were passing bills to reopen government without money for Trump's wall. The bills then went to the Senate where Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he won't even ask for a vote without Trump's OK, even though the bills passed by the Democratic House are word for word the same bills passed recently by Mitch McConnell's Republican Senate. Instead of pressing the president to reopen government, McConnell is helping Trump to keep it shut down. As goes Trump. So goes the Republican Party. Democrats, who've mostly succeeded in linking the shutdown to Trump and McConnell, are not through. They're now passing more bills to reopen the government, one crucial department at a time, starting with the IRS to get folks their tax returns and then moving on to restoring money for food stamps. And Republican lawmakers, especially those facing retirement or re-election next year, are breaking away from the party's Trumpism. Trump's wall of support has cracks in it. A growing number of Republican lawmakers have begun to agree with the Democrats. Maybe government should be reopened first. Then we can argue about the wall and or border security. Maybe the Democrats are right about separating those two issues connected only by Trump's tantrum. A growing number of Republicans have defected from Trump's wall and his shutdown, and they are ready, nay, eager to reopen the government without a wall. They've also been less than thrilled with the idea of a power grab by Trump by declaring it a national emergency, a declaration that gives any president frightening and easily abused powers. They were afraid he would rob the military to build the wall. Knowing he would give his first Oval Office address Tuesday night and that the subject would be the wall, they worried he might declare an emergency and they begged him not to. To the relief of millions Tuesday night, he didn't. He may do it today. To see that there is no crisis at the border, as Trump repeated between sniffs in his primetime address, you can go to the border towns and ask the citizens. Or if you're a numbers person, you can look at a chart of Homeland Security numbers on border crossing arrest to see that they are at a 46-year low, that they are a fraction of what they were 17 years ago, and that they are down 25% since Trump won the presidency. As one observer put it, he could run for re-election on that but Trump wants a wall because he painted himself into that corner. We learned this past week that wall was first imagined by a couple of Trump campaign officials who were trying to create a mnemonic device, a way for Trump to remember to talk about border security when he got up at those rallies. The next thing you know, the Red Hats were chanting, build the wall. Now Trump had to build a wall, whether we needed one or not. Trump cherishes his base and refuses to let them down even when he gins them up by accident. There was never supposed to be an actual wall. It was a mnemonic device. And his base, even as it's shrinking, is all he has left. Now that it's part of his identity, now that he's painted himself into this corner, Trump has no way to turn back. The TV networks got hammered for airing Trump's first Oval Office address, accused across social media of giving airtime and credibility to an incurable liar. What the networks actually did was give up millions of dollars in advertising and delay the post-holiday return of shows crucial to their success to air a presidential address for a president who had said he wanted to declare a national emergency and make the military build a wall. The networks thought you ought to know a thing like that, as it happens. When Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer insisted that the networks give them equal time for a response, they used Trump's penchant for lying as the basis for their request. The networks knew that Chuck and Nancy were right about Trump's lying. And that is why, after much internal debate and consternation, the networks decided to air Trump's speech and the Democratic response. Still, the networks were again accused of getting played by Trump when he didn't announce an emergency. This is patently untrue, and it assists Trump's assault on a free press. A network gets played. Only if it airs a presidential speech without analysis or fact-checking and without allowing an opposition response. To air a speech that had real potential for being ominously historic, to point out its lies, and to air that response is a free press doing its job. To the relief of millions, the ominously historic did not happen Tuesday night. And the fact that Trump had backed off his intention to declare a national emergency and use the military to build his wall also deserved coverage. Don't shoot the messenger. Many Americans who refused to watch Trump's 10-minute speech may have done so for the wrong reasons, but they were right in one of their predictions that it would just be more of the same. Indeed, it was, except for his additional correct claim that there is now a humanitarian crisis at the border. If the speech had a theme, it was that undocumented immigrants are brutal murderers and rapists. That was the lie upon which all his other primetime lies were built Tuesday night. The real numbers haven't changed. Natural-born Americans commit vastly more crimes per capita than immigrants, documented or not migrants in the U.S., especially the ones without papers, are exceedingly careful not to do anything to attract the attention of law enforcement for fear of being deported, and that's true of all crimes, from murder to exceeding the speed limit. The President of the United States was using the Oval Office and the Resolute Desk to declare all undocumented residents to be rapists and killers by using a few isolated and gruesome examples and to claim that they are out to get our women and children. Because Trump's mission on live television was not to get government running again, but to use his bully pulpit to spread fear and hatred and to get his wall. He did this as usual with false claims and claims made based on facts that had been taken out of context. He claimed that law enforcement had asked for that $5.7 billion in wall money. There's no evidence of that. He said the wall would pay for itself by preventing the expense of dealing with the nation's drug crisis. Trump also claimed the wall would be paid for by the trade deals he's made that would, in effect, he claims, have Mexico paying for the wall. There is no evidence of that. By airtime, he had dropped his false claim that 4,000 terrorists had been apprehended at the border. That's wildly untrue. The vast majority of apprehensions of suspected terrorists occur at airports, not at the southern border. The Trump administration had included those in its border count, either through ignorance or to fatten up the number to support their agenda, or both. Trump was forced to drop his lie that former presidents had told him they wished they had built the wall. A quick round of phone calls by the Washington Post to all the living presidents found that not one of them had told Trump such a thing. But Trump did again claim Tuesday night that the government is closed because Democrats won't fund border security. The truth is, Democrats have agreed to spend $1.3 billion to beef up border security. The truth is, Trump had said, quote, I will take the mantle. I will be the one to shut it down. I'm not going to blame you for it, he told those two Democratic congressional leaders. And then he did. He accused Senator Chuck Schumer of supporting a border barrier in the past. And although that is true, Trump did not mention that when Schumer voted for a barrier 13 years ago, undocumented border crossings were much, much more numerous than they are now. And although the southern barrier Schumer supported back then was 700 miles long, Trump tweeted at the time, such a little wall, such a nothing wall. Now that illegal migration is exponentially less than it was 13 years ago, now Trump would love to have 700 miles of wall. Trump was wrong about the border being the main source of smuggled drugs. Mostly drugs get into this country through legal ports of entry. He claimed immigration has arrested 266,000 aliens who have criminal records. The actual number is 211,000, and he failed to mention that includes minor traffic offenses. The president was doing what he always does, spreading fear and hatred with misinformation. Although they took a lot of ribbing for their stiff demeanors before the camera, at least in words, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer landed some punches in their response within minutes after the president's speech. They called out his temper tantrum and said that's not how we govern in this country. They called out the misinformation and the hatred and fear. They called out the lack of facts. They called out his abuse of the Oval Office. But the Democrats don't just have words, they have actions. But also on Tuesday came revelations that, conveniently for Trump, got a lot less attention than his melodramatic TV show about a wall. Those two revelations are, especially together, the biggest bombshell yet in the Russia probe. It starts with a C and sort of rhymes with pollution. And we learned about it by accident. The team of expensive lawyers working to defend Trump 2016 campaign manager Paul Manafort screwed up and released court documents that had only been partially redacted. The parts that were supposed to have been redacted but weren't, the parts only seen by the court, included Robert Mueller's contention that Manafort regularly updated a Russian operative with polling data during the 2016 campaign. It is the first truly damning evidence that there was cooperation, coordination, collusion and conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia to swing the 2016 election toward Trump, the guy Putin publicly admitted he'd favored in the election, having been burned in the past by a much tougher Hillary Clinton. While he was Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort and deputy campaign manager Rick Gates were feeding election polling data to a man tied to Russian intelligence, which was conducting a targeted propaganda attack during the campaign. The man kept updated on those numbers is Konstantin Kalimnik, who used to work for Paul Manafort. The court papers made public by accident were filed by Manafort's legal team which was in the process of denying Mueller's claim that Manafort had broken their plea agreement by lying repeatedly to federal prosecutors. Manafort is now a federal prisoner with gout, sometimes in a wheelchair, while Konstantin Kalimnik is laying low in Moscow, denying he got updates but otherwise not commenting. During the campaign, Manafort emailed Kalimnik about working at no pay for the Trump campaign and about how he hoped to use his job as campaign manager to, quote, get whole. Manafort appears to have been talking about the $10 million he owed to a Russian oligarch named Oleg Deripaska. Manafort was broke and in debt when he wrote to Kalimnik about getting whole. Manafort will be back in court three weeks from tomorrow along with prosecutors for the special counsel's office. On Friday, January 25th, a judge will decide whether Manafort has or hasn't repeatedly lied to prosecutors, thereby voiding his plea deal and meaning certain life in prison unless pardoned. Because Manafort's side of the story has been leaked, now so has Mueller's side of the story. And because of that, we now know Robert Mueller has evidence that Paul Manafort was updating Russian intelligence on election data in real time during the campaign, collusion, and that he's been lying about it. The Trump administration in late December lifted U.S. sanctions on Russia's Oleg Deripaska, an intriguing happenstance to say the least. Lifting those sanctions just before the holidays and before the shutdown made it harder for Congress to overturn since there's a 30-day time limit for Congress to challenge the lifting of sanctions and the clock started ticking in late December. Everybody was going on break and then the government shut down. House Democrats know the clock is ticking. They've already demanded that Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin delay lifting those Deripaska sanctions and Democrats will face off with Mnuchin about that in a hearing today. And it's not just House Democrats who want answers. The bipartisan staff of the Senate Banking Committee has made it clear it wants answers, too. That's Republicans and Democrats. Republicans have resisted Trump's efforts to lift Russian sanctions before, and they may do it again. Stay tuned. Paul Manafort was also present, as was Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner, at the behest of Donald Trump Jr. for that meeting in Trump Tower In June of 2016. If it's what I think it is, I love it, wrote Jr. when he learned he could meet with a Russian to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. It was midsummer and Clinton was leading in the polls when Don Jr. arranged a meeting in Trump Tower with his campaign cohorts and with a Russian lawyer with a lovely smile named Natalia Vizelnitskaya. She faces federal charges in this country for something totally unrelated to the campaign, a money laundering case that she tried to obstruct to protect a Russian businessman. But court papers filed in that case detail her close ties with the Kremlin and how she was essentially a lawyer for the Kremlin. She also, however, is a key figure in the Russia probe. And it is now on record in federal court that Natalia Veselnitskaya, who met during the campaign in Trump Tower with the president's son, son son-in-law, and campaign manager to provide dirt on Hillary Clinton, is closely tied to the Kremlin. Veselnitskaya has also apparently returned to Mother Russia and also isn't taking questions. It is increasingly apparent that regardless of the president's level of involvement, nearly all of his top campaign people did conspire with Russia to stomp on Hillary Clinton to elevate Donald Trump into the White House. In return, Russia's gotten U.S. sanctions lifted, it's gotten NATO weakened, it's exploited the political divisions among Americans, and it's gotten defended by a president who believes Vladimir Putin over U.S. intelligence. Russia got what it paid for in 2016. There is now evidence of collusion, the crime of conspiracy, and there is evidence of obstruction of justice. And it's all beginning to play out in court with help from the prosecutors of Special Counsel Robert Mueller. One of Mueller's federal grand juries has just requested and been granted a six-month extension, which doesn't seem extraordinary considering the magnitude and complexity of this case. The grand jury is 18 months into its work, but these 23 citizens of Washington, D.C. on that grand jury, they've agreed with Mueller's prosecutors that there is more work to be done, and this will give the grand jury members more time to get to know Mueller's prosecutors since they've only met about half of them so far. It was they who voted to continue these jurors at the request of the Mueller team and with the approval of a judge who is not privy to what the members of the grand jury have heard so far. Mueller may or may not need that entire six months, but this gives him elbow room to file more charges and get more indictments. Donald Trump Jr. and Roger Stone quickly come to mind. Stone has said that's exactly what he's expecting. And there is increasing support from Democratic congressional leaders for Mueller to indict individual one on that election finance case individual one is the president of the united states whether by indictment or impeachment or both there is a growing consensus that president trump presents a clear and present danger to this country and must be removed as soon as possible there is growing talk about putting the donald behind bars once he has been removed to lock him up one could say So what are House Democrats doing toward that end to restore checks and balances on this president and to this government? Congress has a constitutional duty to oversee the work of all government, including the departments of the executive branch. That's a cornerstone of our form of government and a mantle that Republicans have avoided ever since this president took office. House Democrats are focused on restoring that balance and to be a check on a predictably unpredictable president. Congress has the duty and the authority to conduct investigations to make sure the laws it has passed are being enforced and whether taxpayer money is being properly spent. Congress has the right to issue subpoenas, as it did during the administrations of Grant and Harding and Nixon. It's a power that can be abused, as witnessed when Republican Kevin McCarthy was the House Majority Leader and conducted expensive and fruitless hearings on Benghazi. But in normal times, when Congress pushes back on an overreaching president, that's Congress doing its job. When former White House aide Steve Bannon testified for the House Intelligence Committee last year, he refused to answer certain questions citing the president's executive privilege. That may have worked when Republicans were running the Intelligence Committee hearings, but it won't with Democrats in charge. The president cited executive privilege when lawmakers demanded he release thousands of pages of records from Brett Kavanaugh's time in the White House. That won't fly in the Democrats' oversight committee's. And as long as Democrats remain in control of the House, executive branch agencies that refuse to turn over certain documents or drag their feet could see their funding cut by Congress. Because Congress also controls the purse strings. All of them. Right after the start of the Mueller investigation, Trump said he would fire special counsel Robert Mueller if the Russia probe got into his personal finances, his business, or his family. It now appears Mueller has already crossed these lines, and Trump has in place an acting attorney general and an AG nominee, both of whom have criticized the Russia investigation. Democrats newly in control of the House are ready to vote to protect Mueller with a twin bill introduced in the Senate. But there is someone the president cannot fire. In the new Democratic Congress, the aforementioned House Intelligence Committee is now chaired by California Congressman Adam Schiff, who is also a soft-spoken but hard-hitting former federal prosecutor. He can't be fired, and he alone could be Trump's worst nightmare. Quoting Schiff, anything that has a continuing ability to influence the actions of the president, we need to know to protect the country. Schiff says he's concerned about the, quote, persistent allegations that the Trumps, when they couldn't get money from U.S. banks, were laundering Russian money. If that's true, says Schiff, that would be a more powerful compromise than any salacious video or any aborted Trump Tower deal. Schiff is likely to subpoena Trump's records from Deutsche Bank, which is known for its laundering of Russian money and the only bank in New York that would lend money to Trump after he developed a reputation for not paying off his loans. Schiff is also likely to slap felony perjury charges on the president's son, Donald Trump Jr. and Trump advisor Roger Stone. Both men appear to have lied to Congress about that Trump campaign meeting with Russians in Trump Tower during the 2016 campaign. Chairman Schiff also believes that despite Justice Department guidance, a sitting president can be indicted for crimes he's committed while in office. So does fellow Democratic Intelligence Committee Eric Swalwell. Over in the Judiciary Committee, veteran Democrat Richard Blumenthal also believes that despite precedent, a sitting president can be indicted. And perhaps most importantly, Speaker Pelosi also believes a sitting president can be indicted. Schiff, meanwhile, plans to turn over whatever he finds to special counsel Robert Mueller. And in the event that Mueller gets fired, Adam Schiff cannot be, except by the voters. Either way, Trump is facing a Schiff storm. Trump's son Don Jr. may be facing that same storm and he's the one person disliked more than Trump by Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob?
1: Thank you, Buzz. There's one human being on this planet who I'd like to see locked up in federal prison more than Donald Trump. Turns out the orange doesn't fall far from the orange tree. Specifically, Donald Trump Jr. is someone who is both repulsive and dangerous, perhaps more dangerous than his addled father. And that's only partly why I'm eagerly anticipating every delicious news item pushing Jr. closer and closer to the slammer. In fact, I've made a bit of a hobby trolling Jr. on Twitter about being locked up. No matter what he tweets, I make an effort to reply by mentioning federal prison somehow. For example, on Wednesday, Junior tweeted an article discussing how Ford moved 700 jobs back to Michigan. Turns out the article was dated January 3 2017 during which Barack Obama was of course still president. Oops, my reply to Junior went like so. Check the date Junior Obama was president in early January 2017. Don't worry, though, you'll get better at dates when you're in federal prison scratching the number of days on the wall of your cell. Needless to say, I'm expecting to be blocked any time now, so I at least try not to go too far, but I definitely push close to that line. After all, I actually enjoy trolling Jr., and I miss not being able to pester him regularly. Short of actually seeing him frog-marched into prison, I've been fantasizing about Jr. being subpoenaed to testify before one or more congressional committees— Yeah, sure. He's already testified on the Hill, a closed door session run by Republicans. Nope, I'm talking about public televised hearings, perhaps lasting for days. Not only would Junior perjure himself on C-SPAN, but also bear in mind that Junior tends to accidentally blurt the truth evidenced, for example, when he released his email chain with Rob Goldstone, implicating himself in collusion at the infamous Trump Tower meeting. It turns out my wish might actually come true. Junior might be the first witness called to testify before the House Intelligence Committee, formerly under the control of Devin Nunes, but which is now chaired by the great Adam Schiff. The Washington Examiner brought us this scoop on Wednesday. Congresswoman Jackie Speer, Democrat of California, a key member of the House Intelligence Committee, asked Tuesday night about whom would have been served first by the panel as it reopens the investigation into Russia, said... Donald Trump Jr. There are, of course, several obstacles we need to clear before it all goes down. First of all, he won't voluntarily show up, he'll have to be subpoenaed, which case he might defy the subpoena. If he actually complies, though, he might be advised to exercise his Fifth Amendment right against self incrimination. Again, Jr. tends to blurt the truth. And his lawyers probably know this. Then again, there's always a shot that he'll agree to appear, and naturally, Junior likes to talk. I'd wager he's using the same cognitive enhancers his ridiculous father is sucking down like Skittles, Provigil or Adderall or something similar. So why do I believe he's more dangerous than his father? I've been considering this question for a while, and it has a lot to do with our recent history with father and son politicians. Some of you didn't care for the presidency of George H.W. Bush, but we can mostly agree that it was considerably less damaging than George W. Bush's presidency. After W. was elected, we learned quite rapidly that he intended to jettison the kinder, gentler thing, replacing it with two endless wars, one of which, the war in Iraq, was a direct response to Bush Sr.'s decision to leave Iraq after the liberation of Kuwait. Instead, W. kept us there indefinitely and without an exit strategy. It's quite possible that if Jr. escapes prison and ends up running for office, an option he's entertained in the past, he'd refuse to repeat the mistakes of his monstrous father, making him even more dangerous based on the W precedent. When I warn about Trump copycats waltzing through the loopholes Trump himself has created, Jr.'s ascendancy is first on that list. On top of all that, my general disgust with Jr. also emerges from all those vomitous photos of him, literally endless shots of him standing over the senselessly murdered corpse of an exotic animal. No amount of mild torment I dish out on Twitter could ever fully compensate for how furious it makes me when I see that photo of him holding the severed tail of an elephant he just murdered and mutilated for no other reason than to watch this majestic animal die. And so perhaps jail is the appropriate destination for a man whose moral compass is this upside down. Whether he's indicted by Robert Mueller's grand jury or whether Spear and Schiff grill the life out of him in the House Intelligence Committee, one thing's for sure, like Trumpism in general, Jr. needs to be humiliated off the stage. The next year or so will decide his ultimate fate, and I'll be watching... Very, very closely. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Bob at Salon.com,
0: his Patreon page, and every Tuesday and Thursday on the Bob Seska Show here at RealmNetwork.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with Bob again on Tuesday. There are multiple signs that the Mueller probe is nearing its conclusion and the presentation of its report. Both the Washington Post and NBC News are reporting sources close to the investigation saying it's nearly over. Additionally, the Post reports that the White House legal team is beefing up in a big way to defend Trump's executive privilege in the search for facts about Russian interference and apparent collusion. Executive privilege could conceivably be used to try to suppress the Mueller report. Trump's personal Russia lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, says Trump wants to see the report before the Justice Department decides whether or not to turn it over to Congress. Giuliani says Trump's legal team wants to see which parts of the report might invite executive privilege. They plan to use privilege also to fight subpoenas from Democratic led House investigative committees. A battle over executive privilege could drag on for months in the courts. 17 new White House lawyers have been hired in recent weeks. 17 new White House lawyers have been hired in recent weeks by new White House counsel Pat Cipollone and White House lawyer Emmett Flood, who reports directly to Trump. That brings Trump's battalion of lawyers in the White House to 35. Cipollone wants five more. White House lawyer Jay Sekulow told The Post it's almost as if he's building a law firm within a government entity. Yesterday we learned that the man who appointed special counsel Robert Mueller, who has overseen most of the investigation thus far, is leaving the Justice Department soon. Rod Rosenstein is soon out the door after surviving Trump's temptation to fire him for appointing a special counsel in the first place. Rosenstein reportedly plans to leave after Robert Mueller has completed his report and after the new attorney general and his deputy are in place for a transition. Rosenstein tentatively plans to leave in early March. This would appear to mean Mueller is ready to make his final moves and file his report. It appears to mean the Trump-Russia investigation will wrap up in the next couple of months, give or take depending on what happens between now and then. Mueller may need to move quickly. The federal courts, upon which he relies, will begin limiting their operations a week from tomorrow if the shutdown hasn't ended by then. And there's no reason to think that the shutdown will end by then. Rosenstein was not likely to survive the new attorney general anyway. If it is William Barr, Barr has said he'd like to bring in his own people long planning to leave after two years on the job, and that two years is nearly up. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein is expecting to gather his things in six or eight weeks after the Senate confirms Trump's choice to replace Attorney General Jeff Sessions with William Barr. As mentioned, Barr's been a critic of the Mueller probe, as is the current acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker. But Barr's been huddling with Republican senators and Republican senators only, in the run-up to his confirmation hearings. Republican senators are now promising Whitaker won't stop the Mueller probe. They didn't say he wouldn't impede it in some way, maybe try to suppress the Mueller report, but they promised he wouldn't stop the investigation. Despite his prejudice in the Trump-Russia case, Barr is not expected to recuse himself from the Russia investigation. The new Democratic Congress would like a word, meanwhile. With acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker. The House Judiciary Committee would like Whitaker to testify about whether his relationship with Trump has influenced his oversight of the Mueller probe and why he decided not to recuse himself from the Russia probe against the advice of his ethics advisors because of his bias. If he doesn't come willingly, Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler says he'll subpoena Matt Whitaker. Whitaker is stalling, says Nadler, who first notified Whitaker of congressional interest in him back in November. Chairman Nadler says Whitaker's stalling, hoping the new guy will get sworn in before he has to answer any of those questions. But confirming William Barr will likely take a couple of weeks to accomplish and House Democrats are waiving subpoenas saying they won't wait that long, which is why Democrats are pushing bills in both houses of Congress to protect the work of the special counsel. The new Democratic Congress may also be angling to get its hands on Trump's long-hidden tax returns. The For the People Act reforms campaign finance, election integrity and congressional ethics. It also expands voting rights and outlaws gerrymandering. Political ads would have to say who had paid for them, even if it's a union or a company or a special interest group. And this Democratic reform package also requires presidents to make public their tax returns from the past 10 years. The same rule would apply to vice presidents as well as candidates for those two offices. And while the Democratic House will investigate many things, Adam Schiff says it is premature to talk about impeachment. Others, however, think it is time to talk about it. If the first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club, then the first rule of Impeachment Club is don't talk about Impeachment Club. When Rashida Tlaib was sworn into office a week ago today, she wasn't through swearing. Talib now represents voters in a district in Michigan. She is a Democrat and the first Palestinian-American woman to take the oath of Congress. In a bar near the Capitol just a few hours later, surrounded by a crowd of progressives from MoveOn.org, Talib said of the new Congress and Donald Trump, quote, we're going to go in there and we're going to impeach the mother effer. The crowd applauded and shouted and cheered in approval. The aforementioned M.Effer did not approve, calling it disrespectful to the United States never mind that it contained the same root word Trump as used in meetings with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, or as he had once used in a public speech about China. Tlaib responded to her critics by tweeting, In the face of this constitutional crisis, we must rise, adding, I will always speak truth to power. She signed her tweets with the hashtag UnapologeticallyMe. Another Democratic woman representing another Michigan district points out that Tlaib was speaking only for herself and that she is but one voice out of many. Democratic leaders in Congress called Talib's comments inappropriate and premature and probably counterproductive for their party and the work that lies ahead. Tlaib has since apologized, not for what she said or how she said it, but for creating a distraction from that important work. But Tlaib's stated goal and the language she'd used to underscore its urgency was music to the ears of progressive Democratic voters who have longed for a bolder Democratic Party. It was what young voters and other progressives had been waiting to hear. And it said out loud what was already on the minds of many. It's on his mind. Pelosi said he'd brought up the subject at the start of their recent meeting about the government shutdown and his demand for the wall In a Rose Garden news conference, Trump told reporters, quote, You can't impeach somebody that's doing a great job. You can impeach a president, however, for committing high crimes and misdemeanors while in office. The New York Times editorial board believes Trump has committed high crimes and misdemeanors and that he is ripe for removal from office as quickly as possible using whatever legal means possible. Last week, I made the case that the man in the Oval Office presents more than ever a clear and present danger to the people of the United States and their form of government. This week, the New York Times published a piece by opinion columnist David Leonhardt that Trump is provably unfit for office, that something needs to be done about it, and the sooner the better. Leonhardt agrees that to wait for the 2020 election would avoid the national agony of impeachment, but quoting him, waiting is too dangerous. The cost of removing a president from office is smaller, he says, than the cost of allowing this president to remain. Leonhardt goes on to outline much of the evidence presented in this report last week as the basis for his conclusion that Trump has to go now. The columnist writes that Trump has violated the Constitution by using the presidency to line his own pockets, including with money from foreign governments, who have gotten in return favorable U.S. foreign policies, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Russia, to name three. His administration is rife with corruption, and he consistently lies to the American people while attacking our small-D democratic institutions, law enforcement, the courts, our elections, and the free press. And making the case that he is, because of what we already know, unfit to lead, Leonhardt argues that Trump cannot be depended upon in the event of a terrorist attack, a Wall Street crash, a war, or any kind of national disaster. Whether he conspired with Russia or not, Trump has acted favorably toward Russia after lying about his business dealings with Russians. He is named as Individual One in a federal felony case of illegal campaign contributions, and he has obstructed justice by trying to thwart the Russia investigation at every turn. The New York Times' call for Trump's removal from office concludes by saying it is up to Republicans to turn against what they know is wrong just as they did at the last possible moment in the Watergate scandal after being equally loyal defenders of Richard Nixon. For now, the investigations are just beginning so that Democratic lawmakers can make one case at a time to sway any remaining support away from Trump from Republican voters and Republican lawmakers. The investigations of special counsel Robert Mueller, meanwhile, continue at a relative breakneck pace for such a complicated case involving foreign governments and computer technology. The people who serve as a president's cabinet members are official only when the Senate says they are. Secretaries of this or that have to be confirmed by a Senate vote. But Trump doesn't have many secretaries these days. And conveniently for him, they have generally not been vetted, much less approved by an equally powerful branch of American government. He has an acting defense secretary, an acting UN ambassador, an acting attorney general, an acting EPA director, and they're all doing great, according to acting White House chief of staff Mick Mulvaney, one of the few actings who have been confirmed, now serving in a job that does not require Senate confirmation. Trump says he's in no hurry to get confirmed cabinet members. I sort of like acting, says Trump. It gives me more flexibility. Do you understand that? We do understand and are rightly concerned. Even when this president had a Senate-confirmed UN ambassador, the US had quietly stopped cooperating with United Nations investigators looking into human rights abuses inside the US. When Obama was president, UN investigators were invited in 16 times. The Trump administration has ignored 13 requests from those investigators for return visits. Lately, those investigators have been curious about how asylum seekers are being treated along our southern border and how the kids are holding up now that two have died in U.S. hands. They want to know how transgendered people are being treated and why income imbalance has gotten worse, not better. And then there are the 40 million Americans who live in poverty, 40 million. Fair questions all from these U.N. inspectors, questions that will have to go without answers, as long as Donald J. Trump is president. Oh, and that, that thing about pulling out of Syria that made the defense secretary quit in protest and frightened all of our allies and stood to open the door for ISIS in the Middle East and the U.S.? Oh, well, that's off. The president's national security advisor, John Bolton, said Sunday the president's immediate and total pullout of Syria would only occur on one condition, that the U.S. had defeated ISIS to the point that it could not retaliate. So, that total withdrawal in 30 days, as Trump had announced it, could take months or even years. To quote Trump's senatorial defender Lindsey Graham, the president is slowing down and is reevaluating his policies. Then, why did our allies have to panic and worry? Why did the Kurds have to be angered? Why did Defense Secretary Mattis have to quit? What was the purpose of announcing this sudden pullout against all advice? We can speculate, but we may never know. A transgender restroom groping lawmakers didn't expect. A strange planet we hadn't noticed before. Humans use rocks and knives to attack electric cars. And three days, man, three days in the final segment up next. Thank you for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com for all your shopping year-round at home and at work. Your use of that link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening, so please bookmark it as your permanent shopping button. I got a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make that way and for every Amazon Prime membership purchase through me, so it really does help power this free weekly report. Just look for the Amazon logo on my website, click that, land on your very own Amazon page, and bookmark that. At your desktop, it's in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title BuzzBurbank News and Comment. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free, independent journalism through the PayPal Donate button you'll also find there. And thank you. Although it's still on hold, the president's ban on transgender troops has been upheld by a federal appeals court. Four lower courts had struck down Trump's ban as discriminatory and a violation of the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection under the law. But the D.C. appeals court overturned one of those four lower court rulings. Since those initial rulings, the administration has refined the ban to, among other things, let some transgendered people serve in certain jobs Meaning it isn't a blanket ban on the entire transgender population and therefore not legally discrimination. As many as 10,000 active duty and reserve troops are transgender, allowed to serve as themselves in the Obama administration. In North Carolina, where fear was promoted that transgender women would be groping females in public restrooms, the opposite has happened. Two women in North Carolina have been arrested for groping a transgender woman at a bar. It started in the restroom, where the women exposed their own breasts, grabbed the transgender woman's crotch to search for a penis, and the groping continued in the bar's common area, despite a bartender's attempts to stop the harassment. A 911 call got the alleged gropers arrested and jailed. But progressives may be making progress on guns while the NRA is weakened by budget-cutting and a federal investigation into whether it funneled Russian money into the Trump election effort. As noted here last week, Washington State banned gun sales to anyone under age 21 and more. In Washington, D.C., five days into majority rule in the House, Democrats introduced a bill to expand background checks on gun sales and to close the loopholes in those laws. Former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords was there, along with Parkland shooting survivor David Hogg. An overwhelming majority of Americans, including Republicans and gun owners, favor tougher background checks in gun transactions. It's a public health crisis in that guns killed nearly 40,000 Americans in 2017 alone. Also in Washington state, the governor is offering pardons to 3,500 people convicted of misdemeanor pot possession before weed became legal in Washington. The city of Seattle is already expunging its old marijuana records. Washington's governor recently told Bill Maher, we've got the best weed in the United States of America. It's your money or at least it was. A report this past week from the Treasury Department reports the national debt is now $2 trillion higher than it was when Obama gave the keys to Trump. The national debt as of December 31st was nearly $22 trillion. Most of that racked up since Trump's so-called tax reform bill. The bill made massive cuts in corporate taxes, so the government isn't taking in nearly as much money as it had been, much less enough income to cover expenses. They called him George, and they were sad on more than one level when George died. They are the residents of the Hawaiian Islands, and George was a snail It was found dead in his shell at age 14 on New Year's morning. George was a local celebrity and revered more because Hawaiian culture portrays snails as the voice of the forest. There was a time in Hawaii when they covered the trees, these snails, happily eating their tree moss. George was an ugly little thing, but he was also beloved by the invertebrate experts who studied him. They too are sad because George, a hermaphrodite that, unlike others, never gave birth, was the last of his kind. George's shell and body are being preserved with a bit of him frozen in case he can one day be cloned. An environmental group on the California coast that counts butterflies says it has seen the monarch butterfly population drop by 86 percent in two years. They're giving the monarch a few decades to extinction. They blame herbicides, pesticides, construction, and climate change. In other words, the presence of man. The bad news for Trump and the coal miners, whose jobs he promised to bring back, is that that has not happened the opposite thing has happened. More coal-fired power plants have shut down under Trump halfway through his first term than closed under Obama's entire first term. The market for coal has continued to shrink. Why, then, are U.S. carbon emissions up 3.5% in the past year if all these coal plants are shutting down? Two reasons are given— that with a better economy, more people are burning fossil fuels, driving and flying. Electricity use is up, and although more electric plants are gas-powered now, that too is a fossil fuel that pollutes the atmosphere with carbon. The forecast is for more extreme weather. More sickness from pollution and the cost that goes with that sickness. More people will die because we have fed the fire that warms the planet with the Trump administration stripping of nearly 90 different environmental regulations. Despite his campaign promises, the coal industry is down under Trump, not up. And it's a good thing because carbon emissions are up as Trump keeps his promise to free industry, especially the fossil fuel industry, from regulation. The problem in Britain is the fatberg, like a little iceberg, but it's mostly made of fat, and it's been floating in a sewer, drifting toward the ocean waters along a popular beach resort. And actually, it's not that little. It's 210 feet wide, more than two-thirds the size of a football field. It's expected to take workers wearing masks eight weeks to cut up and haul away this fatberg, which is bonded together by wet wipes. They will also set up a booth in town to show people samples of what they have flushed down the drain and down the toilet. The fatberg was discovered just a few feet before creeping into those beach waters and just in time. They came from outer space A dozen new pulses of radio waves from outside our galaxy, not outside our solar system, outside the galaxy, outside the Milky Way, came these signals. Radio astronomers have heard these short radio bursts before at the rate of about 5,000 a day, but this time they were able to hear a pattern and able to tell where it came from as closely as they can since the signals are coming from billions of light years away. In an unrelated development, NASA has found a strange new planet just outside our solar system. It's a small world, it's also a cool world, and gaseous, and it's slow, taking five weeks to circle its star. In other words, each day there is two and a half weeks long. Scientists are surprised it's so close to its sun, and yet its atmosphere is so cool. Some earthlings are not keen on advancing technology. In Chandler, Arizona, people with rocks and knives have attacked a self-driving car. It was actually a self-driving van operated by Waymo, a company spun off by Google. The van's tires were slashed by a white man in his 20s who vanished into the crowd. Others have thrown rocks at Waymo vehicles. Others have tried to run them off the roads. One woman was screaming at Waymo cars to stay out of her neighborhood. She says one of them nearly ran down her 10-year-old son. People have called City Hall to complain. One man even waved a gun at a Waymo backup driver after a Waymo car killed a female pedestrian in Tempe 10 months ago. Several drivers have been attacked, in fact. There have been dozens of attacks on driverless cars during Waymo's two-year presence in Chandler, Arizona. Many residents want Waymo run out of town, demanding the company take its experiments elsewhere. City officials say they are comfortable with Waymo's presence. A new study says that half the people who think they have a food allergy are wrong. Half. The study says the ratio of adults with a food allergy is one in 10, not one in five. 19% of adults in the U.S. believe they have a food allergy. The study says only 10% of us actually do But it is vitally important to note that for people who have these allergies, they are susceptible to anaphylactic shock and death. An allergy to shellfish is the number one food allergy, usually beginning in adulthood. More than 7 million Americans are truly allergic to shellfish. Between 4.5 and 5 million are allergic to milk or peanuts. You are officially a senior citizen if you remember three days of peace and love, This summer will mark 50 years since Woodstock, which featured legendary rock musicians. Tickets to the 50-year anniversary concert go on sale before the month is out, promising three stages and a mix of legacy bands and current stars in addition to comedy performances and films. The organizers, including an organizer from a half-century ago, are expecting a sellout crowd, 100,000 people, most of them camping on the festival grounds. Organizers say they hope to call back the spirit of the original 1969 event. Three days, man. Three days. There were some unexpected results at this year's Golden Globe Awards. The honors from the Hollywood Foreign Press Association in their 76th year gave a surprise Best Drama win to Bohemian Rhapsody and The Green Book for Best Musical or Comedy. A Star is Born, the expected favorite was snubbed, winning only Best Song for Lady Gaga. This year's Golden Globes opened the movie awards season on the earliest date ever in the annual run-up to the Oscars. Aquaman was tops at the box office, as they used to say, for the third straight week, taking in another $31 million. Escape Room was second with $18 million. For the trailer, showtimes, and tickets near you, please click on that Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. There were chickens all over the highway in center Alabama this week. Boxes of chicken tenders, to be exact, scattering and skidding across the road. People stopped their cars to grab some nuggets. Police felt the need to warn the public not to eat any of that chicken. Police were clearly enforcing the law known as the five-second rule. In Solana Beach, California, in San Diego County, a man tried to rob a bank, but then... After shouting out his plans and ordering everyone to the floor, he stopped and told the other two customers in the bank to call 911 as he stripped down to his underwear and waited for police to arrive. He had no gun, he got no money, he has no lawyer. He does now have an arrest record and the verdict in his case considering the circumstances could be interesting. Dale Sauerbeck of Pittston, Pennsylvania used a hammer to break into the Rock Street Music Store. We know this from the security video that also shows him stealing two guitars on his first visit and three more on his second entry. As Mr. Sauerbeck was escorted to a police cruiser, a TV crew was on the scene asking if he had anything to say. Go Eagles, he said. It isn't clear whether he meant the football team or the rock band. See, not all the weird stories come from Florida, but this one did. In Clearwater, a 40-year-old man was strip-searched in the middle of a field when he admitted to police he had drugs hidden on his person, or more accurately, in his person. Wesley Dasher Scott now faces multiple drug charges. Wesley swore to police that the three syringes they found up there weren't his. Like the decoration you find after the rest of the holiday decorations are put away, one more note, if you don't mind, about Christmas 2018. Molly Cruz of Springfield, Virginia, got a surprise gift this year that keeps on giving. More than a hundred praying mantises hatched from a casing of eggs deep inside her natural Christmas tree. Crawling on the walls, says Molly, crawling on the ceilings, just kind of moving, Molly has lost track of some of the bugs, and she says that if there are any in her bedroom, she doesn't want to know. Molly says she could have just vacuumed up the bugs, but thought that seemed cruel. So she used an envelope to capture them one by one, as many as she could, and is now storing them in a shoebox where she feeds them fruit flies while reading about how mantises can be good for organic gardening. Molly says through her Googling, she's really come to like praying mantises but she says she plans to get an artificial tree next Christmas. And finally, a woman in Britain is not giving up in her search for Dave. Dave came into her life about five years ago and vanished just as suddenly. So she's positive neither of her dogs ate Dave. Dave is the woman's beloved pet goldfish. A woman named Tanya has looked high and low for her Davo, Our fish tank has a lid on it, she told a reporter. I've emptied the filter, moved all the stones in the tank. I've checked all around the kitchen, checked under the counters. The Facebook page dedicated to Finding Dave is themed, of course, on the Disney film Finding Nemo. There he was last night, says Tanya, swimming around in his tank, minding his own business. And then, whoosh, he's disappeared. We hurt a little, maybe, for the woman's apparent loss, but at some point she may be forced to accept... Dave's not here, ma'am. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting this free news at BuzzBurbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. Buzz 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 Buzz. Buzz 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 Buzz. buzz, 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 buzz. Oh. The preceding presentation was brought
1: to you by the Realm Network.